to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and while you're turning there, I want to share a story with you, a true story. Pastor got a call from a friend of his, an old friend from college, wanting to catch up, and so they got lunch together, and the old friend um, confided in this pastor that all throughout school he had been a, a closeted homosexual, but now he was actively engaged in the lifestyle But at the same time, he was struggling with what he believed about God and about sin and about salvation. So the pastor did what any pastor would do. He invited the man to his church, to attend his church with him. But his old friend voiced uh, something of an irritation that he had. That in his experience, he felt it was unfair that Christians expected unbelievers to come to church with them, to go to a place that might be uncomfortable with them, like church, but then Christians didn't do the same thing back. They wouldn't go somewhere that was meaningful to an unbeliever. The pastor thought about it and thought, well, seems reasonable, understandable. So, sure, let's make a trade. You come to church, I'll go somewhere with you. To which the guy said, great. And he proceeded to invite him to a gay cowboy bar. So, the pastor went. And at first, he had a horrible time. Everywhere he looked, people were doing things he did not approve of, he thought were wrong. Men kept hitting on him. And then to his great embarrassment, he actually ran into two people he knew. Later in the evening, his friend invited him up to a gay rodeo committee meeting. The pastor agreed to go, if only to get away from the guys hitting on him. And here's how the pastor described that meeting. We all sat in a circle like we were in a home Bible study. The meeting opened with introductions, everyone giving their names and vocations. I had prided myself in aspiring to the pastorate, but now found myself in an awkward position. My buddy leaned over and asked, what are you going to tell them you do for a living? I said, I have no idea. Maybe I'll tell them I'm a teacher or a spiritual director. When it came to my turn, I tried to avoid the inevitable conflict and lied to them saying I was a spiritual something or other hoping the cowboys would smile, nod, and ignore me. One of them asked me what my religion was. So, I came out of the closet. I told them I was a Bible-thumping, old-school preacher. This caused some of the guys to laugh, thinking I was kidding. The meeting went well and was not all that different from the boring staff meetings we have at my megachurch, where people who haven't done much try to appear as if they had. Afterwards, one of the guys asked if I was actually a pastor and went on to explain how his lover and many of his friends had died of AIDS. In this, he began discipling me, articulating with great pain the loneliness and death that filled his community and how he feared death. He went on to ask what 
happens to someone when they die, and he wanted to know what would happen to him. He was attentive as I sought to relate the gospel to his life. Sin causes death, but Jesus is God, who became a man and died when he was about the same age as this man, in order to rise from death, in order to forgive sin and give eternal life to those who repent of sin and trust in him. I explained how Jesus can take us through our own deaths and comfort us after the deaths of others because he alone has been through death and come back. The man was not converted through our chat, but in many ways, I was. As I left the bar, God convicted me of my proud addiction to morality and my proud attempt to look like a decent guy that others would like. I cared more about how I appeared to people than about whether I shared the passion of Jesus for the people who are lost. I learned that night that God's mission is not to create a team of moral and decent people, but rather to create a movement of holy, loving missionaries who are comfortable and truthful around lost sinners. And in this way, look more like Jesus than many of his pastors do. Question. How do you see this church? Is it, are we, a team of moral and decent people? Or are we a movement of holy, loving missionaries who are comfortable and truthful with the lost? Another way to get at this, another way to ask it is, what does it mean to be in the world, but not of it? What does it mean to really be in the world, but to really not be of it? Jesus prayed to his father in John 17, verse 15 and 18, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It seems easier to be in the world or to be not of the world, but very difficult to be both at the same time. To bring those two together, there's like this real tension in the Christian life to try to find the balance between being in the world and not of the world. I struggle with that tension all the time. And that's why this passage that we're coming to today is so helpful and so significant for us because in Matthew chapter nine, we find Jesus bringing these two together. Here we find Jesus' example of what, frankly, we can't do without him. And so the title of our sermon today is Jesus Has a Mission of Mercy. Jesus has a mission of mercy. We're in Matthew chapter nine. We're gonna be looking at verses nine through 13. I had planned to go through verse 17, but I ran out of time and space, and so we're just gonna look down at verses nine through 13 today. I invite you to follow along now as I read God's holy and authoritative word. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, or not to call the righteous, but sinners. May the Lord bless now both the preaching and the believing of his word. Well, here we have Matthew's call to discipleship. It's really his conversion story. And we have a confrontation with religious leaders. And in all this, we see Jesus being in the world, but not of it. And that's because he's a man on a mission. He's on a man, or he's on a mission of mercy. And so two points this morning, two points about Jesus. The first is his demonstrating his mission of mercy. And then the second is his declaration of his mission of mercy. So we begin with point number one, demonstrating his mission of mercy. Demonstrating his mission of mercy. Coming into this passage, we need to remember everything that we've been looking at beforehand in the last few weeks as we've been studying this. Matthew has been presenting to us the authority of Jesus, right? We've continued to see the unique authority of Jesus. And so since Matthew chapter eight, we've been looking at Jesus' authority over sickness. What else? Over nature, over the supernatural, demons. And then last week, in the first eight verses of chapter nine, we looked at his authority over sin, right? He he flat out forgives a man. And says he has the authority to do so. Immediately, completely, and totally, the man is forgiven. And so here's the transition I want you to see coming into this passage. This is what what Matthew wants us to see here. The question that immediately rises up is, okay, if Jesus has authority to forgive someone, how much can he forgive? How far can his forgiveness extend? Will it reach down to the lowliest of lows? And that is why Matthew pivots here to telling his own conversion story, his own testimony, because he is a living illustration of just how far Jesus' forgiveness will go. So, verse 9, Matthew tells us he was a tax collector. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, Matthew was a tax collector, and this is significant. We miss this in our day. If you meet someone who's from the IRS, you don't think, worst person in society, I can't believe it. Uh, I don't think we have anybody in the IRS that that goes to our church if they, maybe they wouldn't tell me if they did, undercover. But we wouldn't think of someone like that, right? The the tax collectors are not like that in our day. But in Jesus' day, they had a very different kind of reputation. Uh, a, a, A tax collector would have been seen in that day as the most unlikely individual to become a disciple to a rabbi. And that's what's happening here. This man, Matthew, is the most unlikely disciple. In fact, Matthew would have been considered the vilest person in Capernaum. The vilest person. By their standards, he was the most wretched sinner in town. He was the lowliest of the low, and here's why. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector in service of the Roman government. Okay, so he worked for the occupying forces, the occupying um, oppressors. So to the Jews, Matthew was a traitor to the cause of Israel. He was a traitor to God. He'd sold them out. 
right? He wasn't just a sinner, he was a traitor. Imagine if somebody, you know, I don't know, betrayed the United States to Al-Qaeda or something like, you know, did something, and then they started attending church here. You know, like, that would be hard to get past that. Or if you've had a friend who betrayed you, that sense of, you lose all trust in them. They sold you out. So he was a traitor, and then on top of that, not only did he betray his people, but he also extorted them. So Rome required these tax collectors to collect a certain amount of money, and then anything else they could collect above and beyond that was their salary. And Rome protected them in this. Roman gave them soldiers to protect them in this. So tax collectors amassed a fortune at the expense of their own countrymen under the service of the oppressor. So these guys were hated by their countrymen, and consequently, listen to this, tax collectors were barred from attending um, uh, synagogue, they couldn't attend church, Uh, they couldn't go because they were considered ceremonially unclean, there was no cleansing for them, they were barred from giving testimony in court because they were fundamentally untrustful, they were liars, in fact, the rabbis would say of them that repentance was near impossible. Near impossible. So these guys were the worst in town, the most hated in town, and that is exactly why Matthew uses his own, his own testimony to illustrate his point. If there was one sinner who could not be given, forgiven, if there was one person in town who was beyond the reach of God's mercy, it would have been Matthew. And so there he was, Matthew. He's sitting at the tax booth when along comes Jesus. And, and I want you to notice something in verse nine here. There's something that doesn't translate as well in the English for us. It says, Jesus saw a man called Matthew. Jesus saw him. That word saw seems like a pretty common word, but actually it means something more than just Jesus kind of happened to look upon him, happened to see him. It's a much stronger verb. It means something like Jesus looked intently at him or Jesus focused on him or Jesus set his gaze upon him. Uh, One commentator describes it like this. It's a careful and deliberate vision which is interpreting what it's looking at. Have you been looked at like that? Every married man here has been looked at like that. Right, guys? That gaze from your wife that you can feel deserved or undeserved, probably deserved. That's the kind of look Jesus is giving Matthew, although it doesn't have any kind of that disapproving feel to it, so maybe it's the, the wrong illustration to use. But the point is, is the, the, the look is intent. He is focused on him. And there's something in the quickness of Matthew's response that suggests he had heard Jesus teach before. Maybe he had even conversed with Jesus himself. We don't know that. But what is obvious is he was a man under conviction. Here was a man whose heart was prepared. He knew he needed saving, but what hope was there? Matthew was beyond the reach of God's mercy. I mean, can you imagine a man who wants to come to God, a man who wants to be forgiven, but the whole religious system says, there's no hope for you. There's no forgiveness for you. And here comes a man forgiving sin, healing people. He looks you in the eyes and he says, follow me. He says, follow me me. I mean, can you imagine what Matthew must have felt? It's another one of those moments where I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like. I mean, they don't give us, Matthew doesn't give us the details here, but was he like shocked? Me? Me? Somebody else? Me? 
You know, did he jump up surprised? Scattering money bags everywhere, ledgers are flying, you know, like me? Woo! Or was he just like dumb? Me? 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 Okay. Like, how did Matthew? All I know is that his heart leapt at following Jesus. And friends, no one saw this coming. No one could have imagined that Jesus would call a tax collector to be his own disciple. That Jesus' mercy extends even as far as one of them. I mean, and think about this as an aside, folks. Isn't this just so interesting? Here is a man who's not even allowed to give testimony in court, and Jesus says, you're gonna be one of my prime, exam- or my prime witnesses. I mean, you know, you just don't make these kinds of things up. If you wanted to fool everybody, you wouldn't pick a tax collector. Because no one's gonna listen to him anyway. Unless they're transformed. And then the people who are hungry will listen. The people who want transformation will listen. The lowly and the vile will listen. Friends, the illustration goes to prove the point that Jesus' mercy extends to the vilest. And don't miss this. Jesus is still doing the same thing today. He still comes up to those of us who are vile and selfish and materialist, who spend our lives building up our own little empires, and Jesus sees through all of that. He sees down into who we really are, and he looks us in the eyes, he speaks into our heart, and he says, follow me. Follow me. And those of you who have really heard that call, you know exactly how you felt in that. When Jesus said into your heart, follow me. And there may be some of you here today who you feel the gaze of God on you today. Even as we were singing this morning, maybe as we're going through this, you feel Jesus setting his gaze upon you. And Jesus is calling. Follow me. Follow me. We sing it this morning. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. We're praying for you. All you have to do is leave everything and follow Jesus. Just do that in your heart right now. Follow Jesus. Jesus goes after the ones that everyone else may walk by. Jesus goes after the ones that everybody else gives ups on, but Jesus is calling. That's his mercy, or mission of mercy demonstrated. Let's look number two then, declaring his mission of mercy. Number two, declaring, declaring his mission of mercy. Verse nine tells us Matthew followed Jesus. He left all to follow Jesus, and that's and what, sorry, and what's the first thing he wants to do? What's the very first thing he goes to do is he says, let's throw a party for all my friends. And Jesus, you're invited. In fact, Jesus, you're the, you're the reason for the party. So verses 10 through 11, describe the party and then the critique that follows. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, Mark and, and Luke tell us that this is Matthew's house. Matthew's too modest to tell us this, but... Mark tells us, this is a great, or Luke tells us, this is a great banquet that he set in his own house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came 
and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You remember that word behold? We've been looking at it all through the, these last couple chapters. They keep telling you when something surprising is happening. Right? He's saying something surprising happening here. Many tax collectors and sinners, that's a technical phrase, it means kind of the vile, the vile. Many tax collectors and sinners came to the party and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here we have this, this great celebration, this great feast. Matthew has left all to follow Christ. Luke tells us that. Again, Matthew's too modest to tell us that, but Luke says he left all to follow Jesus and he immediately wants to introduce his friends to Jesus. And this actually just reminds me of, of when Jesus saved me. I was in college, I'd grown up in a Christian home, heard the whole Christian message my whole life, didn't believe any of it. Well, I did believe it, but I kind of rejected it. But then I got into college, heard it, believed it at church one Sunday, and I immediately went back to my dorm room, I gathered all my friends in my dorm room, and I said, listen guys, I just became a Christian. Everything's gonna change now. I love you guys, I want you to come know Jesus. And I just imagine they thought this is the weirdest thing we have ever had to sit through in our whole life. Like what is, what is going on with Jace? What has happened to Jace? Like he was just partying with us and now he's doing this weird religious thing. But I did not care. I did not care what they thought about me because I was so amazed that Jesus had shown mercy to me and I was so excited that maybe they might be converted that maybe they would be saved. I didn't care what they thought. I just wanted to tell them. And I'm guessing Matthew didn't care what they thought. I'm guessing he felt something of how I felt, but that is not how the religious leaders felt. They were not happy that all their friends, all this guy's friends were coming and hearing and being with Jesus. They were scandalized by the idea. Jesus was identifying publicly with those who the Pharisees considered unclean. And in their estimation, this identification was appalling. This was disgraceful. They don't even have a category for what he's doing. The, the Pharisees considered sharing a meal with the tax collector to be a defiling act. This violated their understanding and their application of the law. So not only does Jesus call a tax collector to be his disciple, but he also eats with a house full of them. And this brings us to the very heart of our passage. This is where Jesus takes the opportunity to declare in the most wonderful words, in the most compelling way, that yes, because he is on a mission of mercy. That his forgiveness extends to the very least and the very lowest. Jesus turns this moment of critique into a moment to clarify the scandalous nature of his mission. And so he gives the Pharisees a threefold response to their critique. One is one by logic, two is one by scripture, and three is one by his own authority. So first, from logic and analogy, verse 12, Jesus, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, the Greek order of this sentence actually emphasizes the need not in this, okay? So in its literal order, it reads like this, need not those who are well a physician, but those who are sick. And the way the Greek works, that emphasis on the front, it's like he underlined it or he bolded it. Need not, need not those who are well a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, listen, you say these people are the sickest in society? I'm telling you, that makes them the ones most in need of a physician. 
The logic is simple. The sick need a doctor. Sinners need a savior. And Jesus is the savior. He came for the sin sick. That's the logic. It's sound. If they're sick, they need a doctor. Second, Jesus explains the nature of his mission from scripture. He says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. Now, just pause right there. Go and learn what this means. Seems simple enough. For th- that was a dig. Okay, that was a dig. That's what rabbis would say to people in rebuke to them when they were supposed to know something that they didn't know. They would say, go and learn. Like, kind of like, I mean, it's not quite as vulgar as, but it's kind of like, you idiot. Right? Like, you should know this by now. And so he uses their own line on them, and he says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from Scripture. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So that's a quote from Hosea 6, verse 6, where God is rebuking Israel because they're following the letter of the law, represented by all the sacrifices that they're making, but they've lost the heart of the law, mercy and love. And Jesus is saying that these Pharisees are committing the same error. They're unremitting in their observance of the law. They even make up oral laws to try to hedge the law and make sure people don't accidentally break it. But they had no heart for the outcast. They felt no mercy for the needy, no compassion for those struggling. So Jesus is saying, listen, for all your observance of the law, you've lost the heart of God. So he explains by logic and analogy. He shows it to them in the Old Testament. And then third and finally, he declares it by his own authority. And I think this is the most profound statement he makes. Second half of verse 13, he says, for I came. Let me just clear this up for you guys. Let me just state it boldly for you. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. That's Jesus's mission statement, friends. Here he declares his mission of mercy, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And don't misunderstand Jesus here. He is not saying that the Pharisees were righteous. What he is saying is if you don't realize you are sick, then you're not going to go to the doctor. And unless you realize you have a need, you're not going to repent. These religious leaders kind of, here's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus. He was popular. He was a teacher. They thought, hey, it'd be great to get this guy on our team. It'd be great to get this guy working with us with all his influence and his abilities and all that stuff. Only we've got to make sure we can get him to play by our rules. And Jesus is saying to them, I don't play by your rules. In fact, that's what the latter half of the passage is that we're skipping verses 14 through 17, this question about fasting. It's not a passage about fasting. It's it's about how Jesus is saying, I don't fit. And what I brought does not fit inside all your rituals. I've brought something new. I've brought something bigger. So Jesus is saying, I don't fit in all of that. I'm not gonna play by your rules. And basically Jesus is saying, I did not come for you guys. I didn't come for the self-righteous. I came for sinners. I came for guys like Matthew. I came to call sinners. That's why Jesus came. He came to call sinners because his mission was a mission of mercy. All right, so those are our two points today. Now we have lessons to learn from all of this. Lessons to learn from this whole passage. Some takeaways we have. The first is this. Bert, would you hand me that water over there? First, there is a direct correlation made in this passage. Thank you. There's a direct correlation made in this passage between our condition and Jesus' coming. A direct correlation is made between our condition 
and Jesus is coming. So here, here it is. Here, here it is, friends. Our condition is a desperate one. We are sinners. In effect, sick with a moral disease. Outside of Christ, we are not well. Sin is a sickness of the soul. And each of us has contracted the disease. And there is no human cure to this. Right? It's not about being religious. It's not about being it's not about doing good enough things. Like those things don't cure your soul. like pop an aspirin like it doesn't actually cure you there is no human cure for our condition the only cure is the divine cure and in jesus god announces that he has come to give us the divine cure the cure is divine mercy jesus came to call sinners Commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry writes, Jesus Christ is the great physician of souls. His curing of bodily diseases signified this, that he arose with healing in his wings. He is a skillful, faithful, compassionate physician, and it is his office and business to heal the sick. That is his office and business, friends. Jesus came to heal the sin sick. He came on a mission of mercy to call sinners. And here's the thing. To have Jesus, you have to admit you're a sinner in need of a savior. But once you have Jesus, the ongoing practice, the ongoing act is to say, I am a sinner the foremost I know. That's what Paul said, right? He said, Jesus came to save to the uttermost. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the utmost. And here we have Matthew, who is a sinner of the utmost, right? We have a sinner of the foremost here in Matthew. Matthew understood how vile he was. Paul understood how vile he was. The question is, is do we still remember how vile we are? Apart from Christ. Just send six sinners. Friends, if, if we don't see ourselves as the foremost sinner we know, we are more like the Pharisees than we are like Matthew. And this church will be more like a Pharisaical club than it will be like the church that Jesus is building. We are the sinners foremost in our own eyes. My testimony is, I was the sickest. I was the vilest. And Jesus came from me. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. 
Don't miss the connection between our condition and Jesus' coming. But then lesson number two here is, in declaring why he came, in verse 13, we must not miss the shadow of the cross that emerges here. In verse 13, the shadow of the cross. In verse 13, in the words of our Savior, the cross begins to loom into view. Because our condition is so serious, it will require Jesus' coming. And our condition is so serious, it will require his suffering. That is why he came. He didn't come just to teach. He didn't just come to do or to give us examples. Both are important but neither are sufficient to address our need. Neither are sufficient to address our malady of soul. Now listen, we needed more than the wisest teacher and we needed more than a flawless example. What we needed was a sinless substitute who would suffer in our place. We needed more than the wisest teacher and more than a flawless example. We needed a sinless substitute to die in our place for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God against our skin and securing our forgiveness of sins by God. And that is why Jesus came. He came to call sinners, which meant he came to suffer for sinners. Jesus goes on to be more explicit about this in chapter 22 when he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. How, Jesus? To give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, that's our cure. It's the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Friends, fasten your eyes on verse 13 in this passage. Underline verse 13 in this passage. These words should leave us filling with wonder as we go out from here today. Jesus declares, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call sinners. I came to call and die for sinners. Sinners like Matthew and sinners like you and sinners like me. Jesus came for sinners. He came to suffer for sinners. And that is wonderful mercy for us. But then that quickly leads into lesson number three this morning. Because once we are saved sinners, once Jesus has called us unto his mercy, number three, we cannot cut off sinners. We cannot cut off sinners. Listen, in his commentary on this passage, Gary Osborne observed the following. I I don't have this on the overhead, so just listen. He, he, He made this observation. Too many suburban churches minister only to their own kind and do little to help the inner city poor. If a homeless person were to enter the doors of the church, we would be taken aback. And here's a line that convicted me the most. He says, but if Jesus appeared today, where would he be ministering? He writes, I think we all know the answer. He would shock comfortable Christians just as much as he did the religious establishment in his own day. I think that's right. I think Jesus' ministry, if he were to appear and minister in our own day, two sinners would shock many of us. All throughout church history, you see the church become a place for reputable people. 
For those who appear to have their act together or who appear to have their life all cleaned up or who appear to have their, their affairs in order. Listen, if we are not careful, friends, we are gonna make this place a place where people who have messed up lives do not feel comfortable coming here. Because it seems like everybody here has their life all put together. Which we don't. But Jesus, in his grace, is helping us put our lives together. And for many of us, they're a lot better off than they were when we first got saved. But the effect of that, the unintentional effect of that, is that we can make people lost in their sin feel very uncomfortable. Because we look like we're all put together. And the temptation is to think, we did that. We don't have to say that. That's just what they feel. but maybe that's what we want them to think. But Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Earlier, Bert prayed out of Luke chapter 14, which would be a great passage to go and study and complement with this passage today, Luke chapter 14, about inviting people to the to the banquet, you know, the poor and, and, and whatnot. And, and he prayed for solid ministries in our community who are reaching out to the, the least and the last and the lonely. And so he, he named Rahab and YWAM and True Freedom. And then next week, we're gonna have a, a, a person, a representative from Akron Pregnancy Services here to speak about ways we can partner with them. Uh, there's Haven of Rest in town. The, there's the Chapel's Ministry to International Students. Listen, there are so many opportunities for comfortable Christians like you and I might be to go and partner with ministries that bridge that gap between our comfortable Christian life, relatively comfortable Christian lives and the lowly, the least, and the lost that are all around us. And so if you're not already, I want to ask you to consider, will you upend your whole life? This is a small thing I'm asking. Will you upend your whole life and think about serving in one of these ministries in town? High school students, young adults. I know you've got jobs, you're trying to make money, you've got sporting commitments, you've got all these different things. You have time. And you're making choices with it. Would you consider serving? Don't cut off sinners. And more closer to home in your own life, in the context of your own relationships, look at sinners like Jesus did. We really need to see them carefully and deliberately interpreting what we are looking at. We need the eyes of Christ for the lost. And so as we head into warmer days, which is not lost on me, the fact that it's snowing today, but we are, I say by faith, we are heading into warmer days. Right, when it's easier to invite people into our homes and into our backyards for grilling out and all these different kinds of things. I wanna invite you, will you look with sinners, with the eyes of Christ, and will you consider ways you can intentionally invite them into your life? People from your work and from your neighborhood and from your school and from the ministry you serve at, invite them in with the purpose of showing them the mercy of Jesus Christ. 
And if you need equipped to do this, or if you need freshly inspired for this, then let me come to you Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, that is one of my favorite books on evangelism and hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I think we bought it for half of you in the church before or something. I don't remember. Lots of people have it. If you don't own it, people around you own it, just ask, get the book, read it. It'll change your life if you apply it. All right, lesson number four. Lesson number four, don't cut off sinners, but then don't blend in. We can't cut off sinners, but neither can we blend in. This takes us back to the tension we started with. We're going to be in the world, but not of it. So this tension exists in scripture. For instance, look at Ephesians 5, 8 through 13 with me. It's on the overhead. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So I want you to see this tension in God's word, right? Jesus saves us. He calls us to follow him or to travel down the road he is on, which is this mission of mercy to sinners. He called us to be like him, which is to be a friend of sinners. That's how we are to be in the world, we're to let our light shine in such a way that they see it and they feel it and they hear it. And yet also we're to be not of the world. So we're not to not take part of their unfruitful works, but instead to expose them. So there's this tension that we have to wrestle with in the Christian life. How can we really be separate and out from among them and yet also in among them with compassion and with love? How do we do that? Well, Jesus exemplifies that for us, and I want to say more about it in in just a second. But first, let me just say this. I want want to clarify something that I need to clarify here for a minute. I want to be clear that whatever reaching out in love means, it does not mean compromising the purity of your heart before God. Whatever, okay, you need to understand this, okay, right? So whatever it means to reach out in love, it does not mean compromising the purity of your heart before God. And so I'm trying to emphasize this, especially for people who struggle or are vulnerable in particular areas. You may not be the person to reach people who struggle like you do, or at least not right away, right? So for example, if you were a drunkard, then reaching out in love does not mean you have to go with your coworkers to the bar. There are other Christians who can do that, and there are other ways that you can reach out to those coworkers, right? You understand what I'm saying? We are not as strong as Jesus is. So we have to guard the purity of our own heart before God. Yet, having said that, having clarified that, when we befriend sinners, when we reach out to others in love, the only way, this is lesson number five, our final one, lesson number five, the only way when we reach out in love, we don't just, the only way we can be in the world and not of the world, here's how, this is how you do it, I'll make it real simple. We reach out in love, but we just don't hang out. We just don't hang out. We can't cut them off. We can't blend in, but neither do we just hang out. Jesus was apparently enjoyable to be around, but get this, he was never passive. He was never passive. Verse 13 doesn't say, I came back in, or I came into the world to to kick back. No, Jesus says, I came to call sinners. So Jesus was on a mission of mercy, and that's why he's at Matthew's party. So that in whatever way he can discern there, he can advance the mission of mercy to sinners. And so that's how we engage this world. We are always on mission. 
We go to parties or we go to wherever God calls us on mission, always. Now, I'm not suggesting that means you should go into party, look people in the eye and say, you, follow me. Because that's weird. People think we're weird enough without making it weirder, okay? So don't do that. No, just like Matthew was familiar with Jesus, would have known about his ministry in Capernaum, maybe had already talked with him, we still need to build relationships with unbelievers, okay? We don't be weird, or then you have to, right? So we still have to make an investment in their lives, but we're always on mission. We're always on mission. We're always looking for ways to advance the message of mercy, that Christ came for sinners, And that is exactly why God has you in the office he has you in, in the school that you're in, in the neighborhood that you're in, because it's all about Jesus. You are there to pursue relationships, not make money, not get ahead in life, not have a peaceful surrounding. You are there to pursue relationships with lost people in hope of connecting with them and then subsequently connecting them to Jesus. That's why you're there. Never lose sight of that. In conclusion, Jesus has a mission of mercy. He came to call sinners, of whom we should say, I am the foremost. Jesus came to call sinners. He came to save sinners through his substitutionary life and death. But then he also sends, saves sinners as he was sent. John 15, or 17, 15 and 18. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus has a mission of mercy, friends, and so do we. That's why we are here. So let's go to God now and ask him to give us more of a heart for the lost. A heart like his own heart. And let's ask him to give us opportunities to share his mercy with those who need to hear it. Let's pray. God in heaven, Father and Savior, we just praise you for the mercy that you have have given to us, that you have extended to us, Lord. Our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. God, whether you measure it by the heinousness of the sins that we commit or whether you measure it by the number of sins we commit, our sins are vast and yet your mercy is more. And so we thank you, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. We pray now that you would also forgive us though for the hard hearts that we can have towards the lost, that we can just turn our eyes away, ignore, not really see and build up our own little lives of religiosity and this little Christian subculture we exist in out in our little suburban church. God, any, for any of us here who have hardened our hearts to the lost, we pray you forgive us. Replace our hard hearts with your own soft heart of love for the lost. Give us a heart of mercy. Give us eyes of mercy. Send us out with hands and feet and lips of mercy. And Lord, we pray that you would use us 
pray that you would use us to bring many to salvation. That, Lord, you would fill this church and fill the churches that we one day plant with people converted, with the vilest of the vile, just like us, who know the mercy of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand now.